Hi everyone and welcome. Do you know what day it is? Do you know what time it is? That's right. It's Wednesday, October 18th, and it's time for your midweek Bible study. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It is awesome to be with you today. Thanks for taking time to join me. Today we're going to study the book of James, a brand new study. We finished Philemon last week and that was an awesome study, but now we go to the book of James. I recently came across an introduction to this book, and I'd like to share it with you. This is what it said. The letter from James reads like a Monday morning office memo. From the beginning, he expects his readers to put their faith into action. His challenges are not dated. James addresses practical issues that are as current as the morning's newspaper. The faith that Christians claim must be demonstrated in all situations and circumstances of life, at work, at home, in the neighborhood, in church. Trials and hardships are not to be seen as hindrances to faith, but as an opportunity to exercise healthy faith. Knowing God's word is not enough. That knowledge must be applied to our everyday lives. Real faith is the application of God's truth to ourselves. Isn't that amazing? That is just fantastic. And what a great summary of this book we are about to begin. Now, we're going to get there in just a moment. But as we always do, let's open with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we worship you, Lord. We thank you for this amazing, incredible day. Lord, I just thank you that we can come to this book of James now, and we are so excited about what the lessons are we're going to learn. This first part of chapter one today is going to be just outstanding. So Lord, just open our hearts to receive your truth in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. All right, get your Bible or Bible apps open. We've got a lot to cover today, 18 verses, in fact. So I'm not going to read all 18 verses right now. We're going to go through them one at a time. That'll give us a little bit more time together as we go into each one of these. So let's begin with verse 1 with James' greetings to the first century Christians. Here's what it says. Verse 1, this letter is from James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. Right off the bat, this verse says, who wrote this book? Who is it, and what do you know about him? James is clearly the author as identified right in the first phrase. This letter is from James, he said. Now, do you also know he's the half-brother of Jesus? Next, why does James identify himself as a slave of God? James was a man whose life conveyed both humility and authority. He used the term slave of God, doulos in the Greek, referring to a position of complex obedience, utter humility, and unshakable loyalty. Many of the first century followers of Christ were, in fact, slaves. But among Christians, the idea of being a slave of Christ became not a position of humiliation, but a place of honor. There can be no greater tribute to a believer than to be known as God's obedient, humble, and loyal servant. Lastly, what does James mean when he says he's writing to the twelve tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. This referred to Jewish believers who had left Palestine by force or by choice. The deportation of Jews to foreign lands had been practiced since the days of the Assyrians over 600 years before Christ. But many Jews had also emigrated to other lands in the quest for wealth and opportunity. This network of Jewish communities scattered throughout the Roman Empire became the stepping stones for the spreading of the gospel. Next, in verses 2 through 18, we're going to be talking about enduring trials and temptations. Starting with verse 2, it says, Dear brothers and sisters, 
When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Here's our question. In this verse, James immediately launches into the foundation of his letter with a profoundly challenging command. How can a person consider trouble as an opportunity for joy? Think about it, folks. We are to choose to be joyful in situations where joy would naturally be our last response. When certain circumstances make us angry and we want to blame the Lord, James directs us to a healthier alternative, joy. Those who trust in God ought to exhibit a dramatically different, positive response to the difficult events of life. Our attitude is to be one of genuine rejoicing. This is not joyful anticipation for trials. Instead, it's a joy during trials. The joy is based on confidence in the outcome of the trial. It's the startling realization that trials represent the possibility of growth. In contrast, most people are happy when they escape trials, but James encourages us to have pure joy in the very face of trials. James is not encouraging believers to pretend to be happy. Rejoicing goes beyond happiness. Happiness centers on the earthly circumstances and how well things are going. Joy centers on God and his presence in our experience. The word when doesn't allow much room for doubt. We're urged to be joyful not if we face trouble, but when. Trials, problems, situations can be joy robbers if we lack the proper attitude. Where does this trouble come from? The troubles and trials we face can be hardships from without or temptations from within. A trouble may be a hard situation that tests a person's faith, such as persecution, a difficult moral choice, or a tragedy. Life's trail is marked with such trials. Enduring one trial is not enough. God's purpose in allowing this process is to develop complete maturity in us. Considering your troubles to be joy comes from seeing life with God's perspective in mind. You may not be able to understand the specific reasons for God allowing certain experiences to crush us or wear us down, but we can be confident that his plan is for our good. What may look hopeless or impossible to us never looks that way to God. Verse 3 reads, For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Here's the question. Here James continues his thought from the previous verse. What happens when our faith is tested? You know, I think sometimes we tend to think of testing as a way to prove what we don't know or don't have. But being tested ought to be seen as a positive opportunity to prove what we've learned. This testing of our faith is a test that has a positive purpose. In this case, the troubles do not determine whether or not believers have faith. Instead, the troubles strengthen believers by adding endurance to the faith that's already present. One of the commentaries I was reading about this verse said that endurance is faith stretched out. I love that definition. In other words, it involves trusting God for a long duration. James isn't questioning the faith of his readers. He assumes that they trust in Christ. He isn't convincing people to believe. Instead, he's encouraging believers to remain faithful to the end. James knows that their faith is real, but it lacks maturity. We can't really know our own depth until we see how we react under pressure. Precious diamonds begin as coal. Then they're subjected to intense pressure over a long period of time. Without pressure, coal remains simply coal. The testing of your faith is the combined pressure that life brings to bear on you. Endurance, like a precious gem, is the intended outcome of this testing. Endurance is not a passive, submissive thing to circumstances. It's a strong and active response to the difficult events of life, standing on your feet as you face the storms. 
It's not simply the attitude of withstanding trials, but the ability to turn them into glory. In other words, to overcome them. Verse 4 is next, and it reads, So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Here's the question. What is it that James says to let it grow, and what will be the result of that growth? This verse says that perfection, complete maturity, in other words, is found only in perfect faith in God. More specifically, James uses the concept of endurance, steadfastness, or perseverance to describe the ability to trust God more and more. As a runner gains endurance by suffering through another mile, Christians also gain the ability to trust God through trials. Each experience grants us a deeper, stronger level of trust in Him. In all areas of life, growth only comes through overcoming difficulty. Spirituality is no different. James writes that we should not make the point of our lives an all-out effort to avoid trials. Instead, we should make the most of them by letting endurance, trusting God through another trial, create the result in us that it always does. Namely, more maturity and more trust in God. In fact, James goes so far as to say that the one who can trust God without stopping, no matter how terrible the trial, will have arrived at perfection, complete maturity. None of us is there yet, beloved, but every believer in Jesus is on the way. We just need more trials to keep us growing in that direction. Verse 5 reads, If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. The question is, in this verse, James begins to describe what it looks like to trust God in a variety of circumstances. What does he say? This verse draws attention to our hopelessness without God's assistance. We need a certain kind of wisdom in order to let our troubles be an opportunity for joy. James says that wisdom comes from God. The wisdom that we need has three distinct characteristics. First, it's practical. The wisdom from God relates to life even during the most trying times. It is not a wisdom isolated from suffering and trials. This wisdom is a tool by which trials are overcome. An intelligent person may have profound ideas, but a wise person puts profound ideas into action. Second, it's divine. God's wisdom goes beyond common sense. Common sense does not lead us to choose joy in the middle of our trials. This wisdom begins with respect for God, leads to living by God's direction, and results in the ability to tell right from wrong. And third, it's Christ-like. Asking for wisdom is ultimately asking to be like Christ. The Bible identifies Christ as the wisdom of God. Recognizing our lack of wisdom might cause us to despair, but God wants us to ask him. How do we know that God has answered our request for wisdom? When trouble comes, we'll find ourselves responding with an attitude of joy. We will realize that joy is not our own doing, but it's a gift. Note that what God promises is to supply the wisdom for what must be done. Decisions still have to be made and actions will have to be taken. The wisdom is guidance for what God wants us to do, not his removal of our participation. We must remember that God's promises don't submit to our plans. This verse is not permitting us to ask God for wisdom to bring about our will. Instead, we should humbly ask him for wisdom to remain in his will. Verse 6 is next, and it says, But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. The question says, There is a condition here that's attached to this promise we just discussed in the previous verse. What is it? 
Simply put, we must believe and not doubt. In other words, God wants us to come to him convinced both that he is the one true source of wisdom and that the wisdom he gives is trustworthy. He wants us to be ready and to act on it. The person who doubts God's wisdom or willingness to give is unlikely to accept what God gives. They will consult other sources, looking for a second opinion, spiritually speaking. In James' day, the sources may have included false idols. Today, we have our own share of worthless sources for wisdom, such as false teachers, pop culture, celebrities, and so forth. James writes that the person who doubts God's wisdom is like a wave in a windstorm. Who knows where he'll end up? He's at the mercy of whichever breeze happens to blow the strongest in that moment. Verse 7 is next, and it says, Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. The question is, this verse is part of the profound idea we've been talking about since verse 5. What does it say? The person who asks trustingly doesn't determine how God will answer, but he or she can be confident in knowing that God will answer. The person who asks doubtfully should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, as the verse says, because the request was not genuine. When it seems as if God hasn't answered our prayers, we need to begin the search for a solution by asking ourselves whether we're trusting when we prayed. God cares deeply that his children, believers in Jesus, will trust him exclusively. He's got no interest in being one booth we visit in the marketplace of theological ideas. If our loyalties are straightened out, God's answers to prayer are restored to us. Next is verse 8. It says, Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. The question is, what happens when loyalty to God is divided? To have divided loyalty is to be double-minded. These people may trust God and claim to be believers and yet be filled with doubt, keeping other options open in case God proves not to be dependable. Divided people are walking contradictions. Such instability is revealed not only in their prayers, but in all that they do. When indecisiveness marks a relationship with God, that instability will affect everything in that life. Verse 9 says, Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. James now turns his attention to potential differences among Christians. What does he start out saying in this verse? Some of the believers were poor, low on the socioeconomic scale, so to speak. The Greek word here means insignificant in the world's eyes, lowly, relatively poor, and powerless, lacking in material possessions. They receive the subtle honor of being mentioned first. These scattered Jewish Christians, especially those in Palestine and Syria, would have been in such circumstances. They would have been ostracized by the Jews and were often disowned by their families. This was also a time of famine, and Christians may have suffered severely as a result. Contrary to the world's opinion of the poor, James says that God has honored them. Their high position is a present reality for these believers. It is their rich heritage as children of God who live in anticipation of participating in Christ's eternal kingdom. They may be facing trials and persecution now, but they'll be glad that God has honored them as his very own children. Verse 10 then says, And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. The question is, as the gospel spread around the Mediterranean world, some who believed would have been rich Jews. Others, like Lydia in Philippi, were Gentiles and wealthy. To such people, James gives a special challenge. What is it? 
James reminds them not to measure their worth by their riches and not to depend on their possessions for security and joy because earthly treasures will fade away like a little flower in the field. Christians, rich and poor alike, were being persecuted for their faith. Wealth was not always an effective protection against mob violence. As they were being persecuted, the rich looked very much like the poor and certainly were on the same level. This identification with poor believers could be part of the humbling that James was pointing out. That God has humbled them also means to be brought lower in Christ. That is, the rich are great in this world, but are made equal to the poor in God's world. Next up, verse 11, it says, The hot sun rises and the grass withers, the little flower droops and falls, and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. Our question is, this verse should stand as both a comfort to poor believers and an alarming reminder to wealthy Christians. What is James' point? Simply put, none of this will last. Here James describes a common occurrence in the Middle East. Mourning is often welcomed by colorful desert flowers. Their death is sudden as the hot sun rises. This withering and fading of wealthy people is as sudden as the death of the wildflowers. Death always intrudes. Life is uncertain and disaster is possible at any moment. The poor should be glad that riches mean nothing to God. Otherwise, poor people would be considered unworthy. The rich should be glad that wealth means nothing to God because wealth is easily lost. We find true wealth by developing our spiritual lives, not our financial assets. James begins this letter by making sure that believers, both poor and rich, see themselves in the same light before God. James calls his readers to find hope in God's eternal promises. Next is verse 12. It says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Here's our question. What does this verse say about those who trust God during hardships? The Bible deepens the meaning of how God blesses the people to include a deep joy that comes from receiving God's favor. As athletes persevere in training in order to improve their abilities and endurance for competition, so Christians persevere in spiritual training as they patiently endure testing and temptation that will bring maturity and completeness. Today's trials will seem like training when we face tomorrow's challenges. The way to get into God's winner circle is to love him and stay faithful even under pressure. And here's the good news. There's a finish line. There are successes along the way. Spiritual progress has its mile markers, but the trials of this life are contained in this life. Someday, the test will be over. The first chapter of James teaches us that God's long-term goal for us is the crown of life. It's a rich expression of hope. The believer who patiently endures by trusting God will have a life that, though not full of glory and honor, is still truly abundant, joyful, and victorious. Standing the tests of life gives believers even now a taste of eternity. Looking forward to that wonderful reward and to the one who will present it to us can be a source of strength and encouragement in times of trial. Christians can consider themselves truly blessed no matter what their outward circumstances because they have been promised the crown of life. Verse 13 is next. It says, And remember, when you're being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. The question is, we must have a correct view of God in order to persevere during times of trial. What is that view? Specifically, we need to understand God's view of our temptations. 
Trials and temptations always present us with choices. God wants us to make good choices, not evil ones. Hardships can produce spiritual maturity and lead to eternal benefits if endured in faith. But tests can also be failed. We can give in to temptation. And when we fail, we often use all kinds of excuses and reasons for our actions. The most dangerous one is to say, God is tempting me. It's crucial for us to remember that God tests people for good. He does not tempt people for evil. Even during temptations, we can see God's sovereignty in permitting Satan to tempt us in order to refine our faith and help us to grow in our dependence on Christ. Instead of persevering, we may give in and give up in the face of trial. We might even rationalize that God is at fault for sending such a trying experience and so blame God for our failure. From the beginning, it has been a natural human response to make excuses and blame others for sin. A person who makes excuses is trying to shift blame to something or someone else. On the other hand, a Christian accepts responsibility for his or her wrongdoing, confesses it, and asks God for forgiveness. Because God is never tempted to do wrong, he cannot be the author of temptation. James is arguing against the pagan view of the gods where good and evil coexisted. God doesn't wish evil on people. He doesn't cause evil, and he doesn't try to trip people up. He never tempts anyone. At this point, you might ask the question, well, if God really loves us, why doesn't he protect us from temptation? A God who kept us from temptation would be a God unwilling to allow us to grow. In order for a test to be an effective tool for growth, it must be capable of being failed. God actually proves his love by protecting us in temptation instead of protecting us from temptation. Verse 14 is next. It says, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. Here's the question. This verse explains where the lure to reject God actually comes from. Where is it exactly? Some believers thought that since God allowed trials, he must also be the source of temptation. These people could excuse their sin by saying that God was at fault. Here, James corrects this. He says, temptation comes from within, from the lust of our own desires. He highlights individual responsibility for sin. Desires can either be fed or starved. If the desire itself is evil, we must deny its wish. It's up to us with God's help. If we encourage our desires, they'll soon become actions. The blame for sin is ours and ours alone. The kind of desire James is describing here is the desire that comes out of control. It's a selfish and seductive control. Does James take Satan off the hook then by placing responsibility for temptation on our own desires? Not at all. We may be led by our desires, but it is the devil behind the impulse when we are going in an evil direction. Temptation comes from evil desires within us, not from God. We can both build and bait our own trap. It begins with an evil thought and becomes sin when we dwell on that thought and allow it to become an action. Like a snowball rolling downhill, sin grows more destructive the more we let it have its way. The best time to stop a temptation is before it is too great or moving too fast to control. Next is verse 15. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Here's the question. This verse reveals the consequences of taking the bait of sin. What does James say about all that? First, he points us to the first two steps in the process. These desires lead to sinful actions. Do you see that in the verse? This emphasizes the internal nature of sin. When we yield to temptation, our sin sets deadly events in motion. It gives birth to death, it says. 
There's more to stopping sin than just stopping sinning. Damage has been done. Deciding to sin no more may take care of the future, but it does not heal the past. The healing must come through repentance and forgiveness. Sometimes restitution has to be made. As serious as the remedy sounds, we can be deeply grateful that there's a remedy for all. Next is verse 16. It says, so don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Here's the question. What does James mean when he says, so don't be misled? The danger in James's warning is the temptation to believe that God doesn't care or won't help us or may even be working against us. The picture is not pretty. If we come to believe we're alone, we've been misled. If we distrust God, we've been misled. And if we dare to accuse God of being the tempter, we've been thoroughly misled. Verse 17 says, Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. How can we keep from falling into temptation? That's our question. The way is found in a close relationship with God and the application of his word to our daily lives. This pattern will then lead us to see clearly that every good and perfect gift is from above. In contrast to the view that God sends evil, James points out here that whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father. We can be assured that God always wills the best for us, not good things today and bad things tomorrow. God's character is always trustworthy and it's reliable because he never changes or casts a shifting shadow. Nothing can block God's goodness from reaching us. He is undaunted by our inconsistencies and our unfaithfulness. And now our last verse for today, verse 18, it says, And he chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word, and we out of all creation became his prized possession. Our final question today is this, according to this verse, what is a shining example of the good things God gives? The example is spiritual birth. We're saved because God shows us as his prized possession, one of his own children. Our spiritual birth is not by accident or because God had to. The new birth is a gift to all believers. The true word is the gospel, the good news of salvation. We hear about the gift of birth through the reading and the preaching of the gospel, and we respond to it accordingly. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of our study today. We've covered the first half of chapter one, James chapter one. I hope this has been encouraging to you. I hope it's challenged you. A lot of familiar scriptures there. I hope that you've gained some insight with. Next week, we're going to be looking at the second half of chapter one, James 1, 19 to 27. And we're going to be talking about listening and doing. I can certainly learn from that one too. I hope we all will come back for this is going to be another great study. I want to thank you for being with me today. It's been a joy to be with you. Have a terrific rest of your day and week. I'll see you right back here next time. Until then, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church, real people, a real God, real hope.